I called myself queer because I didn't feel like a lesbian, but I didn't know the words to explain what I felt like. And I didn't know the words to explain what my gender was. And people started to to talk to me about this whole non-binary, this binary trans and this non-binary trans or gender queerness and things like that. And I just went, ooh, ew. <laughs> this might be the thing that you might want to look into. And it really just became that. I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Dr. J is a photographer, occasional producer, DJs when they can, and was a performer of, quote, spoken word performance art end quote, which is the best description of whatever they did on stage. Their motto or artist statement is, if we are not visible, we cannot demand the world make space for us. They are privileged to be able to be visible and are currently sidling up to the patriarchy to convince it to smash itself. We met to discuss her upstairs, a short-lived bar that sprung up in Camden, London, after the closure of iconic venue The Black Cap, and ran from 2016 to 2018. weird pronouns because my pronoun is normally they but when I'm in queer spaces I use she because well it's she because she gets taken she usually the people who call me she have taken me from they from seeing me as a woman in any way all the way out to queer and all the way back into that whole drag circle of hark at her and that very she kind of focus so like um it it's really weird and it, but it feels very comfortable within a queer space to be she but it's because people are seeing me not as a woman but as this kind of strange drag creature that's gone out and back again <sighs> you you sound you seem confused by that <laughs> i'm not sure cuz pronouns because pronouns can be situational as well okay so i can give you an example like having a conversation at her upstairs about in the smoking area about using popping candy during oral sex okay. with a couple of people. And we're, we're, we're discussing sex and being quite explicit. And we're all using she as a pronoun, all the four people standing around. And then I say to one of them that when Maria used popping candy on me, I basically hit the ceiling and she's Maria's now actually writes a piece called things I've broken during sex, which includes my partner's love of pop, popping candy. And, <laughs> um, Ashley turned around and said, why don't you just wear a condom? Because it feels really good. And I turned and said, I don't think that would have any benefit on me. And that was the first time that anyone in that group had considered what my physicality was, what my queerness was, what compared to their queerness and our expressions of queer. But we all use she as a pronoun within that space because it's that kind of very old school camp 
almost she of like yeah. saying there's a femininity about us, but it's it's gone out and back again, if that makes sense. Okay, I, I'm like, you're not, you're, I'm not 100% that You sound you. so confused. <laughs> <laughs> but is it like, so when you're talking about old school, if you're like harking back to that kind of um, stereotype of the 70s queer man who yeah. would who would use she to describe his male friends. Yes, yes, hark at her, yeah. her rear, blah, blah, blah. I don't do Polari very well. Um, but it's almost like, but it's almost like that that part of the drag scene has taken that and bent it even in weirder ways as well. So, like you know, I refer to people as she, even when they're in their boy clothes, because I know them as a drag queen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all about which pronoun people are liking. Yeah. And I I don't, and it's one of those things of I like being she within that space because it puts me into that group of effeminate masculinity or effeminate effemininacy of playing a campness and a unexpected effemacy okay or effeminate i can't say the right the word right <laughs> shall we practice feminness but it's like um i'm not mask and i'm but i'm people don't see me as quite femme either but i've got that kind of camp yeah but so, how do people... How do people know? know? Yeah, how do people know what which pronoun to use? So, at work, I always wear a little badge that's got they on. Yeah. And yeah. I have, I've got that on my business cards. I've got that in my email, everything like that. So, people who know me via work yeah. know me as they. Yeah. People who know me in queer spaces, I've generally just used she. I've not gone up and gone... And, if I was at all concerned, I'd say, oh, would you mind using they? And nobody would give a damn. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost like negotiated. Yes. It's yeah. a bit like consent, although consent's trickier, obviously, than pronouns. Pronouns is pretty simple. This is a pronoun I'd like. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you have to yeah. kind of give them permission to make mistakes, I suppose. Yeah, in that. and, <laughs> you know, I haven't even asked which pronoun you prefer, despite the fact that I spent, what, three hours photographing you one time and all of that. And I just never, never even thought twice yeah. to ask. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I don't think I've thought enough about what I prefer. I kind of, I'm just like, whatever. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, um, because I've been referred to he for most of my life. Um, unless people are referring to me derogatorily. Ooh, it's a word I can't pronounce. Um, <laughs> then, that I'm just yeah I'm fine with that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's I think it's one of those funny weird queer things I know that at work when people use there's a difference between using she for me when the people aren't seeing me as queer yeah. and aren't seeing my gender and aren't seeing the queerness of who I am yeah and that annoys me whereas when people use she and it's used where I know that they can see all the queerness and all of that that I am and they're using she in a kind of strange reflection of that. Yeah. It makes me feel comfortable. But is that you making assumptions about people at work? Uh, no, because I think you can tell when people are doing things yeah. deliberately. Yeah. Like um, you feel it in the in the bottom of your belly. Mm. You feel that microaggression. You feel that push against you. You feel that I'm trying to get under your skin slightly kind mm. of thing of like, um, and 
or sometimes people are saying it without even thinking twice. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a difference in their tone of voice. There's a difference in how it looks and, and also the rest of the sentence. It's not just that word. It's the rest of the sentence and things like that. And it's funny at work. I've got a couple of new people on my team. One of them had a little bit of problems at times of remembering my pronouns they. They, I'm now, she, oh, sorry, they. Mm. Which is really sweet. And I know that eventually it'll sort out yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas for most people at work, they've gotten really used to using they for me. Yeah. But how do you feel about queer uh, as a word? Because I have noticed, like, uh, I'm quite comfortable using that word now because of the, like, spaces I'm in. Mm. And and since it's been kind of reclaimed and and become uh, used uh, more frequently. But I've noticed around non-queer people when I say queer they can bristle a bit and they feel maybe that they don't have permission to also use that word yeah um so before I came out when I was a small child in the 70s and 80s in New Zealand my dad used to refer to me as being queer as a three quid note (laughs) so I think my dad had me well and truly labeled a long long time before I did um but it's kind of one of those things of it's always been it was the word that I used when I started to describe my gender and sexuality or it started to describe my sexuality. It just seemed to be the one that fitted, even if it didn't quite know the history of the word. Mm. But I've never had it, apart from its slightly humorous intent from my father, um, had it used as like an epithet. I've never had anyone use it to swear at me. I've never had it used in anger at me. So I understand why there are some people who, when I use it, especially older people, mm bristle and kind of go I'm not so comfortable with that word and I'm like I totally understand I'm comfortable with it but I want to find a way of describing myself and then Mm. I talk about what it means about being non-normative being that far outside of the normal um and I kind of like that description of it I'm comfortable with that um when people bristle I've had some people bristle um and go I thought that was an offensive term and it's like yeah, it used to be an offensive term. Allow me to talk to you about the history of queer and the history of identity and why being outside of this normative structure is called queer. Mm. And most of the time people are like, oh. And then I refer them to books where people who can actually (laughs) write about queer in a sane and sensible way, they can read about it. So I send them off to MJ Barker's book, um, The Graphic History of Queer. And um, there's... A couple of others that I can think of. I mean, Translate Me by C.N. Lester is also Mm. another one that really explains queer in a really good comprehensive way. Mm. I mean, but when you're sitting in big corporate offices and trying to get people to understand that if I use the word queer, um, you know, I've got my friend Joe has a tattoo on his arm that's got kind of looks like a mother with the da- heart and the dagger and the and the scroll old style tattoo with the word faggot on it <laughs> and and because he's reclaiming it because he gets called it so often mm. um and that to me is really powerful but it's also not a word that i can use it's not a word that i could use to describe me mm. because it's not ever really been used for me mm in any kind of serious way. It's never been used. It doesn't get yelled at me in the street. Yeah. People don't tend to yell at me in the street. They tend to go, why is the children's TV entertainer dancing around with a huge grin on their face and dancing? Is this part of like a flash mob of one person or something silly like that? 
It's the advantage of Only when you get blue. the balloon animals out there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's the advantage of having bright blue hair and wearing like every single colour under the rainbow. Like I become somebody else's problem. Uh, when I used to do Dungeons... Well, when I did Dungeons and Dragons back in New Zealand, um, we used to have this joke called somebody else's problem field mm-hmm. of if you're so outrageous, you're so out there, you become somebody else's problem. Because everyone looks at you and goes, I'm not. I'm not even going to go and approach that person and ask why they're there because it's somebody else's problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I've discovered it. It's like um, I used to have a floor length leopard print coat. And when I wore that on the buses in and out of town on a Friday or Saturday night up to the Masters Club or something like that, I could stand there at the bus stop and nobody, nobody would approach me. Even lost people would look at me and then they'd walk to somebody else and ask for directions. And, and even and then I'd step over and offer them directions and they'd look horrified. And I realised <laughs> that I was so loudly dressed. Everyone was like, how can you wear clothes like that in public and talk to people? And it's like, because you become somebody else's problem. Mm. You're so out there, nobody's going to have a go. Hmm. this is part of my whole being visible thing because if you're that visible and you're confident with it nobody says things whereas if you're trying to look like everyone else and you're not able to be confident people spot the chinks yeah and that happened to me a couple of times um where people would say things like oh what do you expect being dressed like that what do you expect being like that in public and rather than mousing down more because I was being yelled at on a bus, being called a, a batty boy and dyke. And I, I, I love the fact that those two words could be used by the same person <laughs> about me. <laughs> kind of says that my gender, people, my gender is so confusing, people can't even figure out what I am <laughs> enough to abuse me correctly. Um, but it's just, and then when, when you look around for help, people say, well, what do you expect being dressed yeah. like that on a bus? You know, what do you expect? And it's like, I just went, no, I'll be that louder. But that takes a lot of energy. That takes a lot of being stable in a lot of the rest of your life. Yes. Yeah. You know, so. Well, yeah. I mean, because even, you know, uh, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the explaining words to people and explaining their use, I find that really exhausting. So uh, going that step further and being that uh, bold version of yourself. Mm. I would find that exhausting. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is exhausting, but it's also, um, I, I joke, well, I don't joke about it. I've, I'm lucky in that I can be visible because I aren't vulnerable at anything. Like, my job supports me. Mm-hmm. My partner supports me. Mm-hmm. My housing isn't dependent on my identity. My uh, immigration status mm-hmm. is fine. You know, all of these things. If one of these things was a bit of a... a, a a bit more of a problem, I would want to step away from it. I wouldn't yeah. want to be that visible. But because I'm, I've got the privilege, I'm really lucky that I can actually be that visible. I can just be out there. And it means, you know, you bust open the doors a little bit. Um, you know, I sat in a room with a senior, a partner, senior partner from a global law firm, talking to them about what it mean, means to be genderqueer on Thursday, Thursday afternoon because we met at a Christmas party. And they invited me in for coffee and I sat and had a conversation and we're going to continue that conversation. Mm. But they were like, I didn't, I'd never met anyone that I could ask these questions of, Mm. but you were there in t-shirt and 
everyone out you can imagine what the christmas party was like everyone was power dressed <laughs> everyone was in business suits and that stuff and i turned up in jeans and a jumper that had a loud tiger print on the front and bright green hair and was just chatting to people as if that was complete as if i looked like them mm. and he found that really interesting to have that much confidence to be that different mm. and i was like yeah it was a good mental health day <laughs> it wasn't a good mental health day i probably would yeah, have run yeah. away after 15 minutes but yeah. that's the price that i pay is there are some days where my mental health is just like nah nah i'm not going to do that i'll yeah. just stay home or i go into work and i'm just like I, i'll just message people and just go not not having a good day and people at work are like okay what can we do to help you oh if you could do this talk rather and or if you could run this session and i'll i'll back you up that's all that I need today. And it's like, yep, we can do that. Yeah. But you've got to be really lucky to be able to be that vulnerable with people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because not, not many workplaces allow you to be that vulnerable and that kind of Flexible. play around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It costs it costs to be it costs to look this well actually I say it costs to look this good I'm I'm wearing essentially my pajamas <laughs> well no it's oh, so just you dressed up for me great. yeah oh absolutely <laughs> it's my scruffy house clothes you know I would I am about to go out in public wearing this because I've got to go back up to work and pick things up but I really am wow this is the least put together I've been in weeks well it says a lot that you feel this comfortable to <laughs> <laughs> or or i am this or you just care this little about me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i am this exhausted <laughs> okay so shall we talk about her upstairs yes but uh just a bit of clarity because you've been talking about block bar so yeah it's one of those things that they blended to, to me they blended together because it was the same people okay um so um, so I did the, that big festival, the Queerest of the Queer mm -hmm. at the end of 2015. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was broken. I was broke and broken, uh, cause it did many fabulous things and many not quite so fabulous things and was kind of sorting all of that out. And at the time the black cap had either just closed or was closing yeah. and then block bar opened just up the road. Yeah. And Meth and Joe and the family Fierce moved from the Black Cap up to the Block Bar. So I went to Block Bar quite a lot because they had the same the same people who I knew. Um, they were my friends. It was a new space. It was relatively quiet. I could go in and catch up with people. And then I had a look at it. That was about the start of twenty the end of 2015 and then by the end of 2016 meth and joe and a couple of others had created her upstairs which was in the top half of the block bar mm -hmm. um and then about nine months later they got the lease on the downstairs as well so you had her, her upstairs and them downstairs okay yeah so you kind of had this multi-level space so okay so, so just so we went through three so it, it started off as just the block bar started off and, as just a block and bar. then uh upstairs and then upstairs above block bar, bar became her, her upstairs. upstairs and then block bar disappeared and then but became them downstairs yeah yeah and cool. so her upstairs and them downstairs became yeah. the one venue yeah um but they had kind of two spaces and i love the the names that they came up with were just so brilliant mm. for them. You mm. know, her upstairs and them downstairs is just 
really fab and it had a smoking area out the back um that was like the social hub um it had really good performance space upstairs and downstairs was more of a dance space mm-hmm. um with a little bit of performance space a long thin performance space was upstairs um i think this is due to meth and joe both working in as academics well joe working as an academic in performance and meth doing um stage design and things like that they crafted a really good performance space within the space that they had upstairs mm. so that mm. there was lots of ways you could see the stage you could use the stage in different ways and it was really cool mm. and it was easy to decorate so shall we just cycle back quickly right and talk about queerest of the queer oh god <laughs> <laughs> so we did a festival this was i woke up one morning and said i know let's run a festival and everyone went okay and i went let's do it at the coronet and everyone went, yeah, sure. And then I said, um, let's do it across 12 hours. And everyone went, yeah, that sounds fine. And I said, and let's have, uh, how about five stages? Because it's five different performance spaces. And everyone went, that's brilliant. And I said, well, to do that, we're going to need about 80 artists. And, and, and nobody said no. Um, at any point in time during this of no, that's a little bit much. You're a bit insane. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Um, so we ended up with Latrice Royale as our headliner. Um, we had... Johnny Wu and his band. We had, a, there's books around here somewhere with everyone who performed. And if I forget anyone, I'm just going to end up in so much trouble. So, and on top of that, we had 80 other artists. We had Bourgeois Maurice on stage. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea was, as a photographer, I was at the time running around London. And I realized that I was seeing all this amazing performance. But the crowds were different and they were never mixing. And even the performers were never mixing. So I would see performers at bar whatever. I'd see performers at um, Bethnal Green Workingmen's Club at some of the different nights. So I was just out most nights of the week. And I would see all these different performers, but they never seemed to see each other and those crowds never seemed to see each other. And one of the things that I realised listening to people is everyone felt quite isolated, mm-hmm. that they had these little pockets of community and most of the spaces only hold maybe a hundred people. Mm. So you only see those same people and you don't realize how big the actual queer community is in London. Um, so that was the entire idea, get it all together, mix it up uh, in one space across 12 hours with five stages and 80 artists. But I was the one managing everything, making sure the money went in and went out and went out and went out and then then I woke up and went, oh, my God, how much money do I owe to who? And then went, okay, well, HMRC are now chasing me, so you can all just stand in line. <laughs> um, and it took me about mm, about a year, about 18 months to, to clear everything out. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. So that's when I say that I was broken, broken, yes. I, I woke up going, okay. So that was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant event. And it did so much of the stuff you wanted to do. Um, how do you get out of this mess? Yeah. Um, without declaring yourself bankrupt and ensure that everyone who works got paid. And that was one of the big things that I totally have because so much of what we do as performers and as producers and that relies on goodwill of people. And I see big events that can get a lot of money but don't pay that many people they rely on volunteers and that 
means that there's a lot of people who want to get involved who just can't. Mm. So I, everyone who worked for me, I think there's one person who had a bit of a raw deal and I felt sorry for them. Um, but everyone else with what they signed, they pretty much got paid minimum wage for everything that they did because I realised that I was competing with their minimum wage jobs in bars and cafes mm. and everywhere else. So if I paid them, they could come along and take part in it. And that worked for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone everyone ended up being paid. Um, HMRC ended up being paid and didn't take me to court. Uh, but yeah, queerest of the queer. Uh, great experiment, but it's queer and queers ain't got money. Mm. And no matter how cheap, how much we tried to cut things, we just couldn't, we just couldn't get enough and to 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 make it float in any way to do it again. So mm. yeah, queer to the queer. Yeah, ambitious, so- <laughs> ambitious, fun. Um, what is it? Uh, even now, when Maria describes it, she's she she's like, we ran a festival. It was twelve hours, five stages, eighty plus artists. Insane. (laughs) (laughs) And I think if I ever suggested doing anything like that again, um, there would be at least three people who would just tackle, well, actually four people I know of, who would just tackle me to the ground and go, no, seriously, please don't ever try anything like that again. Yeah, cap it at 60 artists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So so that was a difficult time in your life. Yeah. Um, and, And around that time is when Black Cap... Um, closed, closed as well, and, yeah. And Block Bar sprung up to fill the the gap. Yeah, that it left. or I think they kind of took advantage of the fact that some of the the good performers and the people who could organise performance from the Black Cap were available to hire, so bought them in mm. and basically did that. And then you know I had the amazing family fierce. I I kind of had a group of people and I was going to I was trying to think of how to describe them and I was going to use the word far now and then realize nobody very few people other than the New Zealanders will go ah oh, I know what that means yeah I have no and idea. it's kind of um your people it's kind of the people who you connect with uh, so it's so is it a Ma- Maori word it's a Maori okay. word and it's to me which may be slightly not quite getting the interpretation perfect, but it's about not just blood family, but chosen family. Mm-hmm. That logical and biological family mix is your far now. And because I don't have any biological family here, it's all my logical family. Mm-hmm. And essentially there was a logical family. There was a group that I could go along and be with while I was this broken, trying to figure out what I was going to do trying to get a job again, kind of, fortunately I was working freelance. So, you know, I just picked up the job that I'd put down for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. and they were fine with that, but it was very much just trying to find where I fitted in that space. And, and, you know, they were, everyone who I met there was just so welcoming and lovely and, you know, didn't care that I was sitting in the corner going, "Ah, another email. And they were like, it's okay. So what did you think of the performance? And, you know, then mm. we'd talk about photography or I'd, I'd capture what was going on on, on stage um, and just, yeah, enjoy the people who were there. And so had had you been a regular at Black Cap? Uh, not so much. So um, I was a regular down at the RVT a lot and I'd gone to some stuff at the Black Cap, but it's that north-south south yes, divide. Yeah. I live south of the river. Um, and then... Just with people, I 
just moved up. I ended up socialising more up in that up in that North London corner, mm-hmm. and that became not quite my manner, but it was when I changed jobs. It was all not quite on the way home, but I could get there quite easily, and mm-hmm. that that made a difference. Okay, did you meet the family fierce through the venue or prior to oh, the God. venue? And we should say what so the family fierce is a drag family drag troop what 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 am i supposed to call it <laughs> family i think would be the one that's closest it um, is in the name after it's all, in so. the name yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and um so meth is the mother uh joe is hashtag boyfriend joe but it's now hashtag husband dr joe um <laughs> Or or Dr. Husband Joe. I don't think we've quite figured out which way around to do it. Um, There was Ruby Wednesday. I'm going to forget somebody. There's Bourgeoisie. uh, There's Maxine Moore. Lolo Brow. Scarlet O'Hara. Lily Snatchdragon. I think that's who was the core group that I ended up meeting most. And I know that there were people who... We're in and then we're out. And mm-hmm. um, I said Ruby Wednesday, didn't yes, I? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just having that blank of trying to remember who's... That who, pressure who are, who are, of like... Yeah, it's who like pressure of remembering the names of the family. <laughs> um, but I'd met... So I'd known Meth for a while, a long time. And then we, we'd been circling around different because they were performing under another name on a more boylesque burlesque scene and then they got slightly more into drag and performed at a couple of spaces and then we we're at up in manchester together for a couple of gigs um and i uh, and took some photos of them up there um this all came out at their 30th so we so i actually brought the pictures along to everyone which <laughs> nothing like knowing somebody long enough to bring out the bring out the baby photos um and then they they were doing some more interesting stuff. They did some brilliant pantos at the Black Cap. And that was, I, I had two or three years of pantos that I took of them doing it at the Black Cap, which I really, really enjoyed. They were different. They were, if I say their sense of humor matched mine, their sensibilities matched mine. I didn't have to have that moment of going, that joke's tiny little bit on the racist side or mm. um, as an assigned female at birth person, I found that comment just a little bit eh. Yeah. Um, that's not to say all hashtag all drag, but there's still sometimes those moments where you go along to something. Did and... you just say hashtag all drag? <laughs> <laughs> hashtag not all drag. Hashtag not all drag. Hashtag not RuPaul's drag. Um, but there's things that sometimes happen from stage yeah, and especially with some of the pantos types that kind of yeah, yeah 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 and you see things done and you're just like i can get that you're trying to make fun of it but you've just played a stereotype yeah yeah and it's and just it, lazy isn't it and it just doesn't yeah. feel that good or you've made a you've made a comment and it just feels really eh. and i don't see a lot of that so to see say places where i haven't seen it is the glory bar whatever and anything that was happening at the black cat when meth was doing it block bar and her upstairs then mm-hmm. downstairs those were the spaces where i didn't feel that there was that moment oh and shit show at the glory so there's okay. stuff the stuff that happens at the glory that 
feels in that right space. Yeah. And there's occasionally a show or something and I'm like, eh, but I've not at the glory, but it'll be in other spaces. You see something and you're a bit like, oh, oh, that joke didn't quite land. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or like and, we're suddenly back in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Or the 70s yeah. or the 60s. Um, and that's that was also one of the interesting things when they did not another drag competition and some of the and we had it at times at bar whatever with the open mic it's not what's said from stage it's what's said afterwards so if somebody says something or ad libs something or does something that in your dislike seriously did you get anyone who wasn't white to look at this or seriously did yeah. you get anyone that wasn't a cis man to look at this and yeah. just think about it and it's not it's that that happens but it's how you how the people respond to it um and i think it's an important lesson and i think we had to learn it a little bit at crest of the queer it's not that first blow it's the second blow it's yeah. your response to that that's really super important. You can try and be as good. You can brief people. You can make sure that people understand sensibilities and are, I won't say woke, but are as woke as possible. But And not in a bad way, but in that being aware of their privileges, being mm -hmm. aware of minorities. If you don't address it when it goes wrong, that's when it's wrong. That's yeah. when it's really wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it's how you address it. up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of stuff that happens occasionally from stage where you're trying to do three or four things and you try to ad lib or you try to respond to a yeah. question or you say something and you, your brain just comes out with something. You're like, okay. Mm. Um, and it's how you respond and it's, mm. how you, it's how you turn that around. Mm. And it's how you as a promoter also turn that around and you as a producer of a, of a show turn that around. Mm. But it's kind of that thing, isn't it? Like our conditioning, not allowing us to say, oops, mm. I, I did the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and to just be defensive and to, to, to yeah. double down on, on that thing. Yeah. Um, and but... it's about turning around and saying, I, I, and my partner, I know there's a picture of Stormzy up behind you. So, so, People who don't know, there's a really great artist called Wes who does these brilliant prints of Stormzy on wallpaper and found materials and things like that. And I've got one, which I totally love because he's got like this pink and blueness about him. Um, what I One of the reasons I'm, I have so much affection for Stormzy is when those homophobic tweets from when he was 17, 18 popped up, he owned up and apologised. He didn't double down. He didn't do the JK Rowling Blah, 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 blah. Oof, yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> he said, I shouldn't have said those things. I was dumb. They were wrong to say then. They would be very wrong to say now. I shouldn't have said those things. I apologize for, for I apologize for the offense that I caused. Not that you felt offended. I apologize for the offense that I caused. Yeah, yeah. And, and then goes out of his way to be a better role model. And I'm like, that's exactly what you need mm. rather than this either doubling down or saying, oh, no, but it was fine to say that then. Or it was <sighs> a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like... Um, or, or even just what you've just said, like, I'm sorry if you were hurt. I'm yeah. sorry if you reacted to this. Yeah. Not, not like, my actions were my actions and so what. But if you were hurt, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 And that, that to me is the best non-apology. I mean, that is a oh. total non-apology. I'm sorry, for, but but when you say I'm sorry for any offense that was caused, you're apologizing for 
the fact that somebody has reacted to what you said. Mm, mm. You know, it's not that it's just wording it the right way around yeah, and yeah. being mindful of those different sensations of your offense being seen or your hurt being seen and your hurt not being seen mm, mm. or your hurt being dismissed. It's like when, when you were asking about the mispronouning mm. um, and how that feels, it's my hurt in that is sometimes dismissed of like, Oh no, well they didn't mean it seriously. And it's like, no, they did because yeah. I can tell. Yeah. I can tell the difference. Yeah. And it's that minimization of hurt that this that this whole snowflake idea yes, kind of yeah, perpetuates, yeah. which is so untrue. Yeah. Because people people are still hurting. Yeah. You just you you need to own up to the fact that you've hurt somebody. Yeah, yeah, and it's the just because uh you've grown up in a world where it's been okay to say this. Mm. It's not um wrong for someone to point out that it's oh. not okay oh absolutely i mean um oh my mother's never gonna google this <laughs> <laughs> um, i grew up in a culture of systemic racism and i didn't really appreciate it until about three or four years back how racist not in a ku klux klan way or anything but how systemically racist my upbringing was and I feel very guilty for that but I also can't go back in time and change it as much as, as I'd love to be the doctor and a time lord I can't go back in time and change that but I can change how I act now mm. and I can turn around and say yeah I used to think like that I understand how you're thinking like that this is the way to think about mm. it now mm. you know I get oppressed for so many things I've never been oppressed because of the color of my skin I've never been oppressed because mm. of the country of my birth Mm. So one of the things, so we will, we will, we will land on talking about the venue eventually. Let's let's talk about the venue by taking a in very a long tangential way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really interested in talking about um, what you've said about drag. I know I've had quite a few conversations with people about how drag is anti-feminist, mm. and uh, you've just been talking about the drag that you avoid when it's misogynistic mm. or or um or in any way racist or racist. transphobic or homophobic yeah. there all, is homophobic all the, all the x yeah. Yeah. All the, uh, yeah yeah i like that all the x um like how did you get into drag um i loved it because it's a performance and performance for me is everything mm -hmm. like we perform uh, oh, Judith Butler. I've never read her. I just love her. Because um, I perform gender all the time. I perform who I am. Um, I'm a massive fan of Quentin Crisp. Even I know that he went a little bit downhill. Slightly in his problematic. Life. <laughs> Slightly problematic. <laughs> but his early stuff is brilliant because he has stuff from the 1970s. Really spoke to me as a queer kid. When I say queer kid, as a queer in my 20s and 30s struggling to understand what that meant to be mm. having somebody go you can live on your own you can you can go out into the world and be dramatic and be this quiet person who your house is your backstage where you prepare for your entrance into the world mm. and things like that that sensibility that everything was a performance um really really struck home and um when i came to london i started to watch performance and i really really fell into a love 
of different styles of performance. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting was drag takes gender and does when it's good does amazing things with it. Mm. It's misogynistic when it's fishy when it, when they when people are using the word with the words fishy when people mm. are using the terms that would put down any woman in the audience mm. Mm. or anyone who is assigned female at birth in the audience would mm. make them feel lesser than anyone else in the room mm. um it's misogynistic when it's like women can't do drag or yeah. if you're assigned female at birth you can't do drag i just described or if you're a, a whole trans, plethora. Yeah. yeah if you're yeah. a trans person yeah. or if you're um trans people can't do drag or um people with beards shouldn't do drag or people without beards shouldn't do drag or all of these different things and it's like no drag is drag should be open to anyone who wants to try it and it's about performative gender yeah i've seen cheryl perform as a basilisk basilisks have no gender of what um (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was just trying to think of a really good example of non-misogynistic drag and i'm like well cheryl cheryl hole performing the basket at a harry potter night basically writhing on the ground like a basilisk. oh it's okay this yeah. is a harry potter thing. a I harry potter okay. reference it oh, was a harry sorry. potter theme <laughs> and literally you're screaming with laughter and this is one of the best one of the better dance best dancers in the business rolling around on the floor being a basilisk, and you're just like this is more insane than insane this is crazy this is beautiful and wonderful and playing around with what it means to do drag mm. you know can disabled people do drag of course they can can um what is it drag syndrome yes yeah yeah i love the Fantastic. fact i love the fact that drags a performance style that they've gone yes i can do this I can, I can, I can see this and I can use this to tell stories about me and stories about the world as I see it, Mm -hmm. which is important. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I love all performance, but drag has been the one that just captures my heart, but I don't like it when it's the, I don't like the RuPaul's Drag Race drag that much because it's stylized and it's American and it's not about the performance. It's about the look Mm -hmm. and it's about and it's also people are told that they can't do it. And I'm like, no, bollocks, everyone can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting that hasn't shifted yet. 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 Yes. It will. It will. Yeah. The Boulay brothers, they've, they've started to move the dial. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, was it Landon Sider winning it? Yeah, I um, mean, that was... Sorry, if that's a spoiler to anyone. <laughs> Seriously, please, watch the Boulay, watch watch Dragula and just fall in love with oh, Landon but, I mean, But even, like, in the first episode, you're like, yeah, Landon's winning so, this. Yeah, so, like, yeah, it's yeah, not really a yeah. spoiler. It's, yeah, yeah. It, but it's also, you see the different bodies and the different stories that they have on in towel. Mm. Is they're telling similar stories to what's being told through the casting on RuPaul's Drag Race. They're telling stories about the mental health problems, the mm. drug problems that fall from those mental health problems, mm. the the problems growing up in different styles of house, household, the being able to come out at 10 or 12, the never being able to come out to your parents in yeah. your 30s kind of stories. They're telling those, and those stories are still being told, but they're being told not just by stereotypical bodies in a stereotypical way they're being told in a different way and you know some of the stuff from especially from the last season 
of Dragula, I was amazed at how open and honest people were about where they'd been, where their mental health had taken them to. And that, to me, is really powerful as well. Mm. It's saying to people, you don't have to try to be normal. You don't have to try to look like you're coping when you're not coping. Mm. If you're not coping, tell people you're not coping. Because... Mm we should be the sort of community that can stand that can not stand around and ignore somebody, but can stand around somebody and help them and protect them and support them when they're going through that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And those are the best communities. I mean, those are the communities that you build in spaces like her upstairs. Then that was the community that I bumped into. So oh, I did better than you did. Around. I did better than you did in bringing it around. I was gonna do it. <laughs> so, so, okay. So let's talk about that then. Yeah. So, um, so safe to say not the best time in your life pretty much emotionally yeah. emotionally um, uh mental health wise either and uh you so you you stumped, you made you made the journey from south london to into north, north london yeah. <laughs> um because because of that connection with family fierce or because of that connection with the family fierce because of that connection with meth and joe mm-hmm. and ruby and Lolo and pre- yeah, pretty much all of the family fair. So I've got a connection with them. Um, and that also that love of seeing them do different things, seeing them try different things. I mean, yeah, just seeing them try different ways of being from the stage as well. Mm-hmm. Talk about different experiences. Again, sometimes it wasn't for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the performances are one of the best nights that I went to, or one of the best comedy nights that I went to up there was Firms of Colour or FOC, F-O-C. It's predominantly people of colour on stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is always people of colour on stage, predominantly people of colour in the audience. I don't get about a third of the jokes. That doesn't worry me in the slightest because it's not for me. Mm. I'm not the intended audience. I just happen to be along there and really enjoying it and being a supporter, but I'm not who the night is for and that's a difference as well of just being aware sometimes the performances aren't for you Mm. so you might not get all the references that's okay it's people especially if it's a harry potter night i mean oh no (laughs) i'm enough of a geek if it was was a lord of the rings night i had them all completely nailed Uh, and so what did that at that time in your life what did that space represent to you a refuge, a place where I belonged that wasn't just my house. Mm-hmm. Like I would go from home to work, home to work, home to work and couldn't really socialize very well at times. And then this was a place where I felt like I belonged and I would go along. And even if I didn't know people, I could talk to people. So I've met, you know, I've met amazing people up there and I'm staying in touch with a lot of them because of the connections that we made, because it was somewhere where we would meet up and it might be once a week, might be once a month. We'd we'd bump into each other up there and we'd just catch up on where life had been. And if you weren't in a good space, there'd be somebody there who would just go, oh, you're not in a good space. Gin! <laughs> I know the solution. I know the solution. Gin, dance, laugh, mm. feel like you belong to something. Um, it's that I called it living room, a space where you could go, where you could be yourself, where you didn't have to have walls up, 
where you didn't have to, you could just live. Mm. And it's rare to find those spaces where we as queers can just live because we're constantly having to be something else or mm. fighting against a corner or feeling isolated. Whereas this is a space where you could go and be with other people and you could live and you could be with other people who were just living. And for those couple of hours, you would have that space where it was like, yeah, the world out there, eh, it's going to be a bit weird. It's going to be a bit crazy. The world in here, we're all just living. We're all just getting through it. We're, but we're seeing each other. We're seeing who each other each other is you're not having to pretend to be cis or straight or less queer than what you are you're not having to hide the mental health you're not having to hide all of that stuff you can just be yourself mm -hmm. and that's such a rare thing and you find that occasionally and I found that again up in that space mm -hmm. and you know some nights it was there more than others it's never a permanent sensation but when it's there, it's there, it's those moments that just allow you to go, yeah, this is where I can live. I'm not having to shut things off. this space. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it was, it was quite short-lived, this event. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I think it's about just, I think it, all, all in all, including the block bar, it's, it's around about two years, just around, uh -huh. just a bit over two years, I think. Um, and when you were talking about spaces to talk about, I was like, to me, that's important that it was a space that is really short, but within everyone's, and I, if I say living memory, it's a space where I bump into people and they're like, I remember you from from her upstairs and we can start talking. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you talk about things that are maybe 15, 20 years old, you don't quite have that same connection or... Mm you end up with this sense that the younger queers don't lose spaces, but a lot of the spaces are still pop-up spaces. It's nice to have had a a space that lasted just long enough to really build an, an audience, to build a culture, to build a way of being. Yeah. And it's sad that it closed, but it's also all of that, all of those ideas have spread out. Those ideas of how you run a space. There's a legacy. For how that. you bring yeah. people into it. How you how you create spaces. How you make space for people has all been spread out. Which and, is re which to me is really an important legacy of it. And so are you so are you saying that they that uh, that was done differently in this venue? Um, I think so. As a producer, putting the putting the disclaimer on there are different ways of bringing minority people into your performance nights and into your nights and into your events and into your spaces and there's different and it's almost different ways of allyship mm -hmm. as well uh, or supporterism i don't like allyship i don't like the, the notion of allies because it's got um a transactional i'll be your ally as long as you're not too angry or I'll be your ally. I, I would love to be. Uh, you have one of the things that's been said to me. <clears throat> I really, really admire your passion and your ideas, but the way that you represent them really takes away from your message. <gasps> what? And that's from an ally. And that's where I find allyship breaks down because it's not about 
allowing you the space to do the things that you need to do and to be the thing that you are it's saying allyship is if you if you fall within this box yes and this is what can happen sometimes as a producer unintentionally you bring you bring people in um to because you want to give people space but you you don't bring them in in a way that gives them the autonomy and agency and allows them to build their skills yeah so um this is was an idea that i did with queerest of the queer and i know talking with joe that they did with um her upstairs of giving people the space not just as the performers but as the technicians as the people organizing the space just provide the building provide the bar Mm. and they're responsible for everything else you'll help them if they want your help they'll go how do i make this tech deck work and you're like okay it's volume this way that way to move between the two decks remember that if jay is djing because they'll suddenly go why is this not playing and they've forgotten to slide it from one deck to the other i'm a bad dj um <laughs> but it's it's those little it's those things which allows people to become technicians allows people to become producers it allows people to figure out how to build a night how to program a night who do i put on first if i just say if i tell somebody how to program a night it doesn't help them yeah. know how to program a yeah. night it doesn't and it also doesn't allow them to have their voice of saying actually i think it should go this way around because i as i think that these pieces work better this way around and i think this is the thing that should happen before the interval mm. and this is the thing that should be the finale and this is the bring people back in the room that's giving people the ability to try that mm. is super important and yeah. if you say as a producer oh i've got to have two people of color at this night and you literally just put them into your lineup in various spaces that's not allowing them to grow in the same way as if you say hey would you like to produce a night for me here's here's the sort of things that you'd need to do would you feel comfortable doing that i can provide you any help that you need and that's the two different models and i think that model of a, allowing people to grow their skills has meant that even though her upstairs closed, its effects are felt everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, I see firms of colour popping up in different venues. I see some of the nights that used to run, Cocoa Butter Club has gone from strength to strength to strength. Now, Sadie was already a fantastic performer, but they've been able to build crews and build people and build those support things to make nights happen because they had the space to try things out. Mm -hmm. Lads also doing the same. You know, and it's about allowing people to try this stuff. Mm. So do you remember hearing that it was closing? Yeah, it was a real shock when it closed. It was um, totally unexpected for for pretty much everybody, I think, involved, or for most of the people involved. Mm -hmm. So how did it feel? Awful. Um, but it was also awful because I know... Meth and Joe, I know how much pain they were in. And that made it even worse of seeing people you know and love being in so much pain and being incapable of doing anything to to help, to mm. soothe, to do anything mm. um, other than offer texts and platitudes, which is what you do, but it, it was awful. Mm. And it was one of those moments. And it wasn't just the two of them. It was everyone else who I knew who was working there, who was up there, who 
it was it was just bereavement mm. um it was and i hate to say it was like a sudden death but it was almost that that whole thing of like you you still turn around and go oh yeah that happened mm. um and it did take a while of grieving um you know it was a place where i saw people get married it was a place where i saw people being celebrated it was a place where i met people um you know some of the significant people in my life now i met there um and that hurts yeah. that there isn't just that same space so I, I won't walk in and walk across the room and see them sitting or standing in that particular physical space yeah um with the wonky with the very wonky floorboards um but i know that i now see them in other spaces mm-hmm. it's mm. yeah and what do you think london has lost um it's lost a young space a space that was very queer identified it's lost a space that was really intersectional and i'm using that in the correct in that way of like different all different identities were rocking up there and trying things out and testing things out and sometimes those identities didn't get along that well and it was about negotiating the space um I think it's also, it lost, I mean, the fact that it was open, by the end it was open seven nights a week, and there was a space for queers to perform seven nights a week. Like, in 2005, when I arrived here, there was one queer night, queer, queer night a week, and maybe one club night a month, and then with the Glory VFD Dalston Superstore, her upstairs. Some nights at the RVT, you're talking five things potentially happening seven nights of the week. Mm. You know, that to me is... Oh, and then you've got all the other smaller venues, as well, tiny pop-up venues and things mm. like that as well. Um, but to lose somewhere that was just unashamedly queer seven nights of the week, that would literally put on stuff that... Not that it didn't seem to matter how it went, but it had a very queer sensibility about it. Did you ever go to her upstairs?